we enter into the service component, why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray and we're going to dive into his word. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace. I thank you that your goodness and your grace have come to us in Jesus Christ. And so as we gather in the name of your son right now, I pray God that as we look at your word, you might speak to us. I pray you might lift our sights off the here and now to what our lives can be as we follow you. Give us a vision, God, for what our lives can be as we follow you. More than anything, teach us uh, what your body is all about. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever thought about this? Why doesn't God just appear to us physically at least once in a while? Have you ever thought about that? Why doesn't God just appear physically to us just once in a while? I mean, he did it with Abraham. He did it with Jacob through a wrestling match. He spoke to Moses via the burning bush. He audibly spoke to Samuel in the temple. He appeared to Isaiah. Likewise, to the apostle Paul on numerous occasions. He gave visions to John. I mean, I don't mean to question what God is doing here on planet Earth, but it seems to me that at times if God wants us to experience his presence so badly, why doesn't he just make his presence known to us through our five senses? through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling. Just the once in a while would do it for most of us. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had hundreds of conversations over the years with good-hearted believers and even seekers who have asserted to me that just a quarterly taste of God in the physical realm would dispel all of their doubts. Just a once-in-a-while breakthrough is all it would take in their minds, a burning bush, a voice in the temple, a blinding light, or even a divine wrestling match to keep them going and growing when it comes to their faith. So why doesn't God do this? Why are the epiphanies reserved for only a chosen few and not even all that often for them? Well, believe it or not, folks, for thousands of years now, there has been a very clear and cogent answer to this question. There has. Many of you don't realize that because you've never really sought the answer to this question, but for thousands of years now, the Bible has actually answered this in pretty clear language. It's not an answer that most believers realize or understand all that much, but it is one that the Bible hits from multiple angles and talks about all the time. It's that important of an issue that God wants us to realize. And though you're going to start to understand the gist of this answer that the Bible gives from the very first of my three points this morning, you're going to want to reserve full judgment as to what you think of this answer until you've understood all three points. Because I'm going to warn you right now that the answer that the Bible gives as to why God doesn't appear physically to us all that often is a radical and profound thing. It literally changes the entire game of life. And so you've got to hang in there until all the answer has been given, okay? So here's the first thing to understand about God's physical presence on this earth. Look up here on the screen, and that is that God has chosen to reveal himself most visibly through his people. Did you know that? God has already declared in his word that he has most chosen to most visibly reveal himself through his people. And now, in order to truly understand this point, I need to introduce you to a phrase that I used when I was praying there that the Bible uses numerous times. It's the phrase, the body of Christ. Now, let me see a hand raise. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, the body of Christ? Have you heard that phrase before? Like almost all of us, a lot of us have. Uh, look at what the Bible says in two separate places, Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, about this idea of the body of Christ. 
It says first in Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, it says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 27, it says something similar. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so simply notice that twice here it mentions that we, the gathered church, are the body of Jesus Christ. And though this sounds so simple, a statement like the body of Christ, what you need to know, folks, is that Bible experts have wrestled for 2,000 years as to what exactly Paul the Apostle and others mean by this. In other words, when they say that you and I, the people of God, are the body of Jesus Christ, what exactly does that mean? I mean, for instance, is this simply an analogy or a metaphor being talked about here? You know, the people of God are like a physical body. They represent God's body if he were to actually have one, but they aren't really God's body in any physical sense. It's just like a word picture here to get some point across. Some argue that this is a metaphor being talked about here. We are like a body, God's body, if he were to actually have one. And yet the problem with this interpretation is that in all the places that the New Testament talks about you and I being the body of Christ, get this, it never does so in direct metaphoric language. In other words, it never says you are like Christ's body. It says that you are his body. And further, it's interesting, in one particular passage that talks about this idea of the body of Christ, again, it's all over the New Testament, in one passage, Colossians 1, verse 18, when you look at the entire context of the passage as it talks about Jesus Christ, it talks about all these literal, non-allegorical things about Jesus, and then right in the middle, it drops this idea of us being his body with no evident switching of gears to any kind of metaphor. As I look up here on the screen, I want to show you what I mean. This is very fascinating. Read along with me. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, literally, the firstborn of all creation, literally. For by him all things were created, literally, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We take that literally. And he is before all things, literally, and in him all things hold together. Theologians take that literally. Then it says here in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Pause right there. Is that literal or is that a metaphor? You be the judge. Goes on to say, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, literally, that in everything he might be preeminent, literally. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, literally, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, earth or things in heaven. And we take this literally. Do you see the point? I mean, if this idea of us being the body of Jesus Christ is some quite nice, quaint metaphor, the New Testament writers didn't make it all that clear. In fact, it's dropped right in here in the middle of all these literal things that are true about Jesus and the fact that he has a body and his body is us, that we are his hands and his feet. It doesn't seem to be a metaphor, folks. 
And so others have suggested, well, maybe then this is some kind of substitution thing going on here. You know, Jesus had a body when he was on this earth, but now that he's gone, we kind of replace it, so to speak, like we do things in his stead, in place of him. And though this could be true in a right understanding of what the Bible means by the body of Christ, again, there isn't clear evidence that this is the case. I mean, it never says that we have replaced Jesus or that we're his substitute. It simply says that we're an extension of him, his body, and he is the head. And so still others have said, well, maybe this is some kind of mystical, spiritual thing going on here. Like we aren't really Christ's literal body, but he does work in and through us as if we were. It's like they're saying his, his presence is with us and is poured in us, but we're not really and truly his body. I mean, let's not take it that far. And though I think this is getting closer to a right understanding of the body of Christ, I still think it falls short, folks. I'm trying to get you to see this. And what the Bible simply and plainly says, you are the body of Christ. I mean, even in the one spot where it does mention that this is a mystery, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30 and 32, it doesn't mean a mystery in the sense that there is some type of mysterious presence of Christ. What it's talking about is that it's a mystery that he can use a fallen misfit like the body of Christ, us, as his body. That's the mystery, how God would want to unite with a body like us. No, folks, I don't think this is merely an analogy or a replacement or some kind of mystical presence. Here's what the Bible teaches. Listen close. Jesus Christ came to this earth as a man 2,000 years ago, fully God and fully human. He died for our sins, rose again, ascended into heaven, where he now reigns in power and majesty. And because he's not here anymore in bodily form, we now the church, anybody who gathers in the name of Jesus Christ, are his body. His hands and feet, literally and truly so, and he is our head directing what we do. We are the body of Christ. His primary motion and activity here on earth, that's what the Bible affirms. You know, John Orberg, in his book entitled God is Closer Than You Think, actually refers to this as two incarnations. He's not being heretical. He's just saying that that Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago in bodily form, and that could it be he is now human again as he functions in and through us, the church. Look up here on the screen. Listen to how he says it. He says, God has incarnated himself again. He is present to us through people, a real estate agent, a banker, a next-door neighbor, a homeless man. He says, when it comes to people, it is perhaps supremely true, God is closer than you think. And don't get Orberg wrong here. He is not suggesting that we are Jesus. I mean, he makes that very clear in his book because the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is Jesus and that he reigns as the Lord independent of what any of us do. Do we all understand that? There is a difference between the church and Jesus, and surely the original incarnation historically is different than how he might manifest himself in the church. And yet what Ortberg and others are suggesting is that the Bible isn't kidding or overstating the case or even drawing some nice little analogy when it says that we, Jesus' followers, are now his body literally and truly so. And the way this is literal is that when God wants to make his presence known to this world that he has made, he does so through plan A which is his people, his body, who have become his physical presence here on earth. 
Don't miss this, folks. If you don't hear anything else today, just hear this simple phrase. You are the body of Christ, truly and actually so. He has chosen to reveal himself most visibly through his people. In and through Christ, we the church are now God's first choice to reveal his presence to a hurting and lost world. That's what the Bible affirms. And so not only does this understanding get us closer to that age-old question, why doesn't God appear physically to us? Because the answer become he does in and through his body, the church. But when you think about it, it also begins to change everything about how we understand God and his activity on this earth. In fact, let's move on to point two this morning. You'll see what I mean. This is why I said earlier, you've got to wait till we get through all three points before you give judgment on this. And so here's the second thing that we need to understand once we begin to get this idea of the body of Christ. Look up here on the screen. And that is that we experience God then when we experience his followers who love and serve. That's the second thing we need to establish today. That we experience God then when we experience his followers who love us and serve us and vice versa. Now to get this point, what you don't want to miss is that after the scriptures lay out this idea of us being the body of Christ, it's fascinating that they immediately go on to talk about the different gifts and strengths that we each have through the Holy Spirit in serving and loving others. In other words, there's a pattern in the scriptures, whether it's 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, or Ephesians 4, 4, 5, that when it talks about us being the body of Christ, it then goes on to talk about how the fact that we have different gifts and serve one another with those gifts. So look at Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, right after it talks about the body. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, the idea of speaking boldly, use it in proportion to your faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, mean gives, in his generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So please simply see, you got the body of Christ, and then they use their gifts to love and serve, i.e. being God's presence here on earth. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7, again, the same chapter talking about the body of Christ, it says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then it goes on to list these manifestations with gifts like wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing. Book of Ephesians does the same thing. Mentions the body of Christ. Then it talks about gifts like evangelism and shepherding. Peter adds the gifts of hospitality. Are you starting to see? Each time, right on the coattails of laying out this idea of the body of Christ being the presence of God on this earth, the Bible then tells us that every follower of Jesus has been given at least one special gifting by the Holy Spirit so that when we love and serve others, we can tangibly be the body of Christ, the presence of Christ to those around us and those in need. And folks, when you finally get what is going on here, how God wants to use all the various gifts and strengths he has given to the body of Christ to manifest his presence and activity on earth, the implications for what you and I do become staggering. 
That's why I said earlier, a right understanding of the body of Christ, which I don't think most believers get, or at least don't take very far, once you truly get this and start to run with it, it changes everything in the way that we do our normal Christian activity. And in fact, I want you to think of at least three general activities that any God-honoring church is about today. Three things that most churches do on a regular basis and how this right understanding of the body of Christ, loving and serving, radically affects what and how we do in these three general activities. So, for example, first, simply think of the whole idea of prayer. Give me a head nod that you all understand that churches pray. Do we all understand that? Yeah. And that Christians pray. Kind of like how computer people type how plumbing people work with water, uh, the, the, the words and the fluid of the Christian life is prayer. It's what we do as Christians. We talk to God, we thank Him, we praise Him, we confess our shortcomings, we ask certain things of Him, we pray. It's core to our Christian experience. But now think about it. If it is true, however, that we are indeed the body of Christ, his physical presence on earth, plan A for being his hands and feet, then prayer almost becomes circular reasoning with God. It's true. In other words, when we pray for someone or something, if we are indeed God's body, his chosen instruments of physical activity and presence on earth, then many of our prayers must and will involve us in the answering of them. And so we pray say for somebody's financial troubles, or for someone's depression, or for somebody's relational struggles, or for the temptations that they're experiencing. And God, who hears our prayers, goes to answer them in the life of the person that we're praying for, and in answering them, chooses to use us, his body, to be his provision for their need. And so we provide the money, we provide the comfort, we provide the counseling, we provide the encouragement and accountability, all in the power of the Spirit, all in the name of Jesus Christ as his body. Please see, I call it circular reasoning prayer. We pray, God hears and receives our prayers, then immediately throws them back to us by delegating to us his body the responsibility for answering the exact prayer that we threw up to heaven. And when you get this, could it be that this is why so many of our prayers go unanswered? Because the body's not really that strong at times. You know, this is precisely what James was getting at when he challenged his first century audience with a theoretical situation. Look at what he says. It's hard to escape the implications here. Look up on the screen, James 2, 15 and 16. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, which is like a, a blessing in the form of a prayer, he says, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He's essentially saying, you're the answer to the prayer that you're praying. You're the body, the hands and feet of God. You're, you're the provision to the need that you're concerned about. So, so pray, yes, but also be willing to be an answer to that prayer. You know, the logic here is something we all learned as kids. How many of you as kids can remember somebody saying that if you're not, you know, willing to be a part of the solution, don't be a part of the problem or don't bring a problem, right? I mean, we all learned that as kids. Like, my old man taught me that. And yet the reality is, is that the Bible affirms the same thing. God says, you're the body of Christ. Don't bring me a problem unless you're willing to be a part of the solution as I empower you as the body to be a huge part of the solution. 
that we're going to talk about this more in a minute here, but I sent out an email to the whole church, and then we posted it on our website Friday in response to what's happening in Haiti. I mean, what's happening in Haiti is obviously a devastation. And there's many people in our country that are concerned about this. We've got many calls here at the church. And we're going to be doing something at the end of this service today that I wrote many of you about. We're going to take up our elders' fund offering, and we're going to commit it completely to what's happening in Haiti. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But what's the logic behind that? The logic is simply this, is that though I called all of us to pray about what's happening in Haiti, and we do need to pray for the people of Haiti and for God's movement and for the workers and the relief people and all that, at the same time, we all know if we're not willing to be a part of the tangible help there, then what good is just praying? Amen? But we all know that. The reality is, is that we need to put our resources, whatever they might be, whether they are financial resources or gift resources or relational resources, we always need to put our resources where our prayers go. It's Christianity 101, but make no mistake, it's the body of Christ, and it affects even our prayer. And yet it doesn't stop there. For notice, by way of a second example, uh, how this understanding of the body of Christ affects something else that all of you are very familiar with. Notice how it affects our community. Our community. And by community, by the way, I don't mean the community out there. I'm not talking about like Scottsdale community. I'm talking about the community in here, what, what we call in Christian ease our fellowship. The fact that we have relationships with one another. A right understanding of the body of Christ radically affects our relationships here. In other words, once a church understands its role as the literal body of Jesus on this earth, it forever changes the way you see community and fellowship with other believers. In his book, Stories for the Journey, Bill White tells a story of a couple named Hans and Enid who came to America shortly after World War II. Hans had, a Hans had been a seminary professor before the war, and he and Enid were forced to flee Europe and start a new life here in America along with a lot of other people. They eventually found a small seminary to teach in, and for years Hans taught theology while raising a family here in America. And one of the things that he was known for by his fellow faculty and students was his incredible love for Enid. They took walks together nearly every day. They sat together in church every Sunday, always holding hands. It was told that he defined devotion to his wife, and all who saw it were inspired by it. And then one day Enid died. And overwhelmed with sorrow, Hans stopped taking walks. He stopped going to church and he even stopped eating. He was overwhelmed with grief. Some of you have been there. And in response to this, the president of the seminary, along with three longtime friends, started visiting Hans on a regular basis. And yet the loneliness and the depression remained. Hans was clearly experiencing what spiritual writers would call the dark night of the soul. And one day he announced to his friends, look up here on the screen, he said, I am no longer able to pray to God. In fact, I'm not certain that I believe in God anymore. Pause right there. If you were in the room and Hans said that to you, what would your response be to him? What would you say? But would you tell him that you just read this great book on apologetics that would convince him that God is real and that you want to give him that book? Hopefully not. Would you tell him that he's in danger of his immortal soul by, by not believing in God right now? Hopefully not. But what would your response be to a man in that kind of darkness? White goes on to say that when he made this statement, there was a moment of silence, and then the president of the seminary said this. He said, then we will believe for you, Hans. We will make your confession for you, and we will pray for you. And the four men met daily for prayer, asking God to restore the gift of faith 
to their friend. And they also regularly visited him at his house. After many months of prayer and regular visits, one day Hans smiled as they were praying for him, and he said to them, it is no longer necessary for you to pray for me. Today, I would like you to pray with me. And as White says, and I quote, he says, the dark night of the soul had passed. Instead of carrying Hans to Jesus on a stretcher, they carried him to Jesus on their prayers. And they never left him in the process. Uh, Folks, I am blown away by that statement, then we will believe for you, we will make your confession for you, we will pray for you. Because you see, there's not one of us here this morning who in our darkest times does not long for friends in a community like that. Amen? Every one of us longs for that. What are the implications of this body of Christ theology on our community? It means that there will be times when we're literally going to be Jesus to and for each other, especially during those very dark times when we can't see Jesus very clearly. It means that community is not some nice little platform where we have a meal together and study a book of the Bible and share a few prayer requests and then go home. But it becomes an organic community where the life of Jesus is poured in and through human beings one to another in a whatever-it-takes kind of way. That's the kind of community that Jesus had with the 12 disciples. That's the kind of community the first century church has. And that's the kind of community where we become the hands and feet of God to each other. Sam Rayburn is one of the most well-known speakers of the House of Representatives in the history of American politics. Some of you remember him. Serving more years as speaker than anyone ever before him or after him, he was known for his fairness, his candor, his integrity, and his honesty. He grew up in a very humble little town in Texas called Bonham, Texas. And then he spent the vast majority of his adult life as a legislator in Washington, D.C. But then in 1960, Rayburn got cancer. And he shocked all the Washington elite by immediately announcing that he was moving back to Bonham, Texas, this little town. His friends and colleagues told him that Washington had the finest centers for treating cancer. They argued that his whole adult life had been spent in Washington, D.C. And when they finally said to him, why are you going back to this little no-name town in Texas, he said this. Look up here on the screen. He said, because in Bonham, Texas, they know if you're sick and they care when you die. In Bond, Texas, they know when you're sick, and they care when you die. When I read that, my immediate thought was, I wonder if everybody at Scottsdale Bible Church who calls this church their home could say about their church, they know when I'm sick, and they care when I die. Because that's the point. That's the goal. We are not the body of Christ to each other unless we can say that. You know, one of the fears I had in moving my family out here to Scottsdale is that I came from, again, a town like Bonham, Texas. My hometown, Chagrin Falls, Ohio, during the 2000 census, had 4,300 people in it. That's smaller than this church, my hometown. The town that I lived in, it wasn't Chagrin Falls, that was the closest town, was Russell Township. Uh, That town had 5,300 people in it at the last census, still smaller than our church. I can relate to, to this quote here because, you see, in my hometown, and many of you come from hometowns like this too, they know when you're sick, they know everything, and they care when you die, right? they got to take the good with the bad. But the reality is, is that they know, and at the end of the day, they care. And you see, that's not just reserved for small towns. That's the church. 
One of the things that breaks my heart is when I hear stories, and I hear them at times here, and it just crushes me when I hear stories of one of you who have gone through a very, very difficult time, and we weren't there for you. Either we knew or we knew when we dropped the ball or something, but it just crushes me. I think to myself, that's not the church. That the church needs to be there for each other. We're the body of Christ, for crying out loud. We're his hands. We're his feet. And we experience God when we experience his followers who love and serve. That's why I said at the beginning of the message today, I love the fact that you guys show up. I love the fact that you have your favorite pew. I love the fact that you like the sermons. I love the fact that you like the music, at least kind of. I love all of that. But the reality is, is that if we don't get out of the pew and be the body of Christ for each other, we're missing it. Amen? We're missing it. And so when I say that one of our goals by the end of this year is to have 75% of our regular attenders involved in some kind of service, and I don't care if it's formally within the walls of these church or down at neighborhood ministries or in a home Bible study, but just something in which you're rubbing shoulders with other believers and allowing them to minister to you and vice versa, using your gifts, then we're not the church. We're not the church without that. Because that's what defines the body of Christ. That's community. And then lastly, by way of example, think about our mission. You know, we've been real clear these last two years what our mission is. We say it in three words. We're to win people to faith in Christ, build them up in their faith, and send them out to become winners and builders themselves. It's not rocket science. We're here to win, build, and send. That's our mission. Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1, it's the Great Commission. But have you ever thought about this? How and exactly in what ways are we to do this? Or to put it more pointedly, why would an unbelieving world listen to our message in the first place? You ever thought about that? I mean, what would cause a seeking world to embrace Christianity amidst all the other spiritual choices? Why should they listen to us? We believe it's the truth, but how would they know? And you know, one of the answers that people give is through apologetics. You know, we defend the faith, and we give them intellectually rugged answers to why Christianity is true. And that's true. And I love to do that, and I do that all the time. But you know what's interesting? Is that even our leading apologists in this nation, guys like Josh McDowell and Ravi Zacharias, would be the first to tell you that apologetics alone is not going to convince somebody to become a Christian. Isn't that interesting? Give them all the intellectually defensible answers to all their questions, and they're still not going to become a Christian. So what else is it going to take? Here's what they all agree on, and that is that when they see and experience the love of God in and through us, the body of Jesus, then they will know that God is true and has come to them in Jesus Christ. That's how they're to know. Through our love and care, through our serving of them, is how they know he is real. In other words, our mission totally depends on us being and functioning as a body of Christ, or it all falls apart. It's true. You see, folks, when it comes right down to it, here's the answer to the question we began with this morning. Why doesn't God appear to us physically? The answer is he does. He does so all the time, every day, through us being the body and for us being his hands and feet to those around us. To put it in our language here today, it's Wayne Grudem, Paul Wagner, Fred Shea, and our other enrichment class leaders teaching us with their wisdom. It's Daryl shepherding us with his love as our pastor emeritus. It's Joe and Lucas and the singers and the choir and the orchestra leading us in worship. It's our gifted evangelists sharing their faith and praying with a hurting person. It's your friend who calls you just to listen and encourage you. 
It's your kid who speaks truth to you about your drivenness and your anger. It's a church member who visits you when you're sick in the hospital. It's one lady in this church who I know of who volunteers down at Neighborhood Ministries three to five days a week. It's all the volunteers who help with the funeral that we put on in this church this week. Listen, folks, it's any and all of God's people as they use their gifts and strengths to be the love and presence of Christ in small ways and in big ways each moment of each day. And so here's the final thing to understand and hopefully live when it comes to us being the body of Christ, and this is it. And that is the call then that we each have is to be his hands and feet wherever he places us. That's what I want to leave you with. The call that we each have is simply to be his hands and to be his feet wherever he places us. So whether you're visiting here this morning from another church, whether you're a snowbird here for a few months, or whether you're here all year round, it doesn't matter. The reality is you are called to be the body of Christ to each other and to a lost and hurting world wherever he places you. And when we do that, it works. God enters in, and in a catalytic way, his spirit empowers that. So here's how we want to wrap up our service this week. I wrote to many of you this week, if we had your email, that uh, we got a lot of requests for asking us what are we doing as a church in response to what's happening in Haiti. As many of us know, Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. About one half of the population of Haiti live on less than a dollar a day. Fewer than 75% of children will ever attend school in Haiti. 6% of the population is infected with AIDS, and the population in Port-au-Prince is about 2.5 to 3 million people. And as we all know, on Tuesday, a 7.0 magnitude earthquake hit this already troubled country. Buildings have collapsed, including the parliament, the presidential palace, schools, and hospitals. Untold number of people, as we sit here right now, are still trapped under the rubble, and the death toll is feared to topple 100,000 people, maybe even more. And so what are we going to do about this? I asked us as a church to do two things. First thing I asked us to do, because this is what we do best, is to pray. And I don't say that tritely. We need to pray for the people that are there, that God would give relief, that he would give comfort, and that as we've already started to see on the news, that we would hear story after story of what God might do to rescue and save people. We need to pray for relief workers. We need to pray that food and water and necessities can get through. As of this morning, we need to pray for the violence that's starting to erupt there as people are starting to panic and as prisons have even crumbled and now there's prisoners running all over. We need to pray, and we need to pray regularly for the people of Haiti. At the same time, as we've learned today, we dare not pray if we're not willing to do something. Amen? So I know some people are actually going to go down there when they can. But what all of us can do in addition to pray is also to give. And so what we're going to do right now is take up an offering for Haiti. Uh, when the tsunami hit a few years ago, this church partnered with an organization that we had a very good experience with called Food for the Hungry. Isn't it interesting that Food for the Hungry right now, which is a, has a great reputation, has staff on the ground in Port-au-Prince. And so the money that we give that goes directly to Food for the Hungry will go directly to Haiti and provide immediate help. We have a representative for Food for the Hungry out in the uh, foyer and out in the, in the open air there. And if you want to stop by there and talk more about what's happening or hear more about what's happening, please feel free to do that. We want you to have confidence in both your church and this organization and getting your dollars directly to where they need to go in Haiti. And so we're going to take up an offering here, our, our regular elders fund offering. When the elders found out that this was a Sunday to take up our elders fund offering, they said they wanted all to go to what's happening in Haiti as we pull together as the body of Christ. 
If you're writing a check, you can make it out to Scottsdale Bible Church, write Haiti in the memo line, and what we're going to do is write one big check tomorrow with the offerings that we get in our five, six services today. If you already wrote it out to Food for the Hungry, that's okay too. We'll pass that on. But we want to just support them tangibly right now. So the ushers are going to come forward, and as they do, I'm going to lead us in prayer. We're going to be sung to, and then I'll dismiss us uh, in our service. So why don't you bow with me right now? Father, one of the things that I love about this church in particular is that uh, we know God has blessed us. We know that even in these tough economic times that we're blessed than most anybody else in the world, and we want to honor you with the blessings that you've given us. God, I don't say that to guilt trip anybody here today. It's just a truism, and this church has been very generous in history past, even as we saw most recently. So, Father, I pray that as we give these um, offerings right now to you, we pray, God, that they would get immediately and clearly um, and directly to the folks who are suffering in Haiti. And, God, we would pray just your activity and your blessing and your relief and your comfort and your help upon that country right now and upon Port-au-Prince. We pray, God, that you would work through the relief workers and the churches and the organizations that are there right now, through the government. God, we pray that you would just bring relief to those people. May both in the short term and the long term, God, you comfort them in this very difficult time. We pray, God, too, that we might hear story after story of what you are doing in their lives. Lord, as you know, I heard just on the news the other day about a gal who was trapped in the rubble for 48 hours and prayed to you each moment of that time, and she said she never doubted that you'd hear her prayer, and you did. And she gives all glory to you. God, may we hear stories like that. And Lord, may you comfort those who have already experienced tremendous loss. God, we thank you for the blessings you've given us. We pray that you would use these now to bring a cup of cold water, literally so, in the name of Jesus to those in need. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.
able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And God's people say, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Have a great day.